Really, Daniel chapter 4 is the most extraordinary story of an Iraqi king who was born about 600 years before Christ. He's somebody that we know a little bit about in ancient history. He was a religious man. He built temples for Marduk and for Nabu. But Daniel is the only source that we have for his dealings with the Lord. And I have rather mischievously entitled this study The Missionary Ambitions of Nebuchadnezzar. Because you will notice at the beginning of the chapter that Nebuchadnezzar has a fascinating missionary ambition in the way that he tells this decree. He has an extraordinary goal. He writes to the peoples, nations and people of every language who live in all the world. Now you may say, well that's just the way that mm, sort of imperialists typically write. We're in charge, everybody's got to listen to us. Well I suppose that's one way of looking at it. But it rings different bells for the people of God, doesn't it, when you read an announcement like that. This is for the people's nations and those of every language. This is the sort of ambition you find is typical of any spirit-filled person. But when the Spirit came, he wasn't content in just communicating in one language. He gave tongues so that everybody heard it in their own language. How is it that we hear the wonders of God in our language? And Peter says, well, it's Joel's day when those of all flesh are going to get zapped by God. God wants to get through to people. So, obviously, in one sense, we could say Nebuchadnezzar was in in tune with contemporary spiritual believers. He was in tune with obedient Christians who know that the Great Commission is as you go, make disciples of all the nations and don't be picky about it. All of them. And here is Nebuchadnezzar not being picky. They've all got to hear whatever language they speak, we've got to get through with this decree. I'd say it's also typical of hope-filled believers who read the book of Revelation, which so often swipes language from the book of Daniel. And in Revelation chapter 7 you have this lovely vision. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, rejoicing that salvation is found in our God and in the Lamb. So his goal... Nebuchadnezzar's goal is everybody's got to hear about this. Nebuchadnezzar's goal, secondly, was that every nation and people group should experience well-being. I suppose the Hebrew word would not be so much prosperity, but shalom, may you prosper greatly. We always tend to put down the fact that we're reasonably prosperous. I actually rejoice that over the years that I've been going to China since 1988, many people are doing much better now and have much more now. I don't think it's something to decry. I think it's something to be relieved about. I only wish it spread further in China. Prosperity per se is not out of harmony with God's will and that's why every mission group is concerned for develop work, development work and things like microcredit to help people get business off the ground. We don't need to glory in poverty to be Christians even though many of the world's Christians are frighteningly poor. 
we don't need to be dualistic about material stuff. God made material stuff for us to enjoy. But it can become our God. And we can too easily agree with Deng Xiaoping to get rich is glorious. When, as he will put it, you can do that at any cost. Don't. But here is Nebuchadnezzar, may you prosper greatly. He wants the foreign countries to do rather better than they are doing, which is not bad, is it? But we find, thirdly, that he enjoyed telling them his testimony. And I love the way he tells his testimony. In verse 2, This my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. That's rather interesting that he enjoys telling this story because it really does say, lad, you're rubbish, doesn't it? Isn't it extraordinary? That God zapped me, knocked me for six, and I lived like an animal for a while. Let me tell you how wonderful God is. Now, isn't that interesting? It's very significant that the story doesn't actually put this great, amazing imperialist in a very shining light, does it? It's a bit like the testimonies in the New Testament of the, rev- uh, uh, of the resurrection. Oh, we all ran away and we didn't really want to believe it. And we shut the doors because we were scared out of our wits. Uh, Christian testimonies ought to be like that. We're not trying to be gurus getting people to follow us. We're trying to get people to do business with God. But as I look at this story that Nebuchadnezzar tells to all the nations and it's come down for us, it's a story that teaches us much about the journey of faith of someone who comes to Christ from another religion. So I want to read it that we can learn from this testimony. In this testimony, first of all, he speaks about the confusion that he experienced. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying on my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's this guy, he's not a believer, he has a dream. He has a vision in the night. It scares the wits out of him. I bet he sweated. And here he is like this, and, and... God does speak, doesn't he, cryptically through a dream or vision to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not quite sure what it's about. We didn't read the whole story, but you got the gist of it from what was read. All this stuff about trees being chopped down and things. What's going on here? Do you ever have dreams that cause you a panic and you wake up and you wonder whether it's real or not? We're not actually as dreamy as some cultures are. But he has this dream... He's a very comfortable man, he says in verse 4, contented and prosperous. Suddenly he's disturbed and shaken and frightened. And you wouldn't think about that if you'd lived under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, would you? That this guy that's in charge of everything, who calls the shots right, left and centre, is panicked out of his wits. But he was. Now it seems to me that as we go to and fro and work among the nations who if we don't go to them come to Oxford whether we like it or not that as we go among the nations we need to watch out for this. It's very normal isn't it for people during Ramadan to have visions of Jesus. 
extraordinary the way that the Lord steps in. Not that they are converted through visions and dreams, but that they are set thinking. There's a colleague of mine and there was this Turkish woman who was trying to catch up on education in Holland and she was adopted, having had a very terrible time in Turkey, she was adopted by these uh, Dutch friends of mine. And one day she had this extraordinary vision thing where she had this wonderful warm feeling came over her and the word that kept coming to her mind was Jesus. Not the Muslim word Isa, but Jesus. So she didn't know this word. So she went to a teacher in the school, who happened to be the only Christian teacher in the school, and said to her, uh, excuse me, but what is Jesus? I mean, what is Jesus? Because it's associated with this wonderful feeling of well-being and warmth that flooded over me, and the teacher led her to Christ. Some years ago when I was working in the Philippines there was one people group that I visited called the Tadyawan and one night two different families next door to each other they all had the same dream in the same night. You know, I mean British secularists will say well they obviously all let too much cheese or something but actually it was God. And God they had this shining dazzling vision of someone they couldn't really look at who told them that someone was coming soon to tell them the truth about God. Actually, the first person who came would not tell them the truth, it would be the second person. And the first person that came, uh, even the most charitable view, would probably have described as a heretic. And they said, oh yes, we knew you were coming, but you've got it wrong, please go. And then two of our single ladies had climbed through the mountains where all the Marxist guerrillas were and come up covered in leeches. And this is the sort of work we normally give to single women. Uh, we need the men to be the directors. Um, <laughs> and, and these two single women arrived and they said, oh yes, we knew you were coming, please sit down and tell us, because we know. We, I mean, they're all psyched up like this. Now, we need to watch out for this. The living God does normally work through our witness and stuff, but he's not dependent on that and he gets people psyched up in all sorts of ways. And here he is getting Nebuchadnezzar psyched up with this vision. And not only is he psyched up by a vision, he is somebody who, although he has his own faith, has become profoundly disturbed in it and frightened. And we see that from time to time as well and the hundreds and hundreds of Iranians who turned from Islam to Christ in Britain as well as in many other parts of the world. So there's confusion. The second thing we find is that Nebuchadnezzar said, well I didn't actually find any answers in my own faith system. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they couldn't interpret it for me. You say, hey, we read all about that before in chapter 2. Yeah, that's right, some people are slow learners. And we do need to actually understand that. That when you're raised in another culture and another belief system, there are certain things that you plug into on autopilot. This is what we do when we're handling a difficulty. 
I often ask people from different cultures and religions, what do you do when you're under pressure and in a, in a crisis? It's fascinating to see what people will tell you about. And we know with Nebuchadnezzar that what he does is he calls all, his, 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 all the occult people that he can get hold of to see what they can do. People do not give up their faith and their cultural identity easily. I want you to notice also that Nebuchadnezzar is still dependent on magic and astrology and on spirit mediums. And here we find that God is bringing these people to frustration with their non-answers. So there are two things to watch out for in this little bit. We need to watch out for the way that folk are often dependent on the occult working. I find it fascinating with, with, with Japanese and Malaysians and others, I always check what they're wearing around their necks and ask them to explain it. Sometimes it will make your hair stand on end. Just because we live in a profoundly secular society, it doesn't actually mean that there isn't a lot of occult practice here. We need to be aware, not seeing a demon under every chair, but aware that many people are seriously trapped in some of these practices. It's more common than you think. But the other thing we see in this little section is that fundamentally Nebuchadnezzar is losing his faith in his non-Christian religion. It's a sort of up and down journey for him. There are disappointments on the way. In chapter 2 he learnt that he couldn't find answers in what he'd been brought up to believe. But in chapter 4 he tries it again, just in case. But he is being shaken in the beliefs that he's been raised in. Watch out for that. It happens often. The third thing we notice is that he asks a believer to help him, verses 8 and 9. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream, interpret it for me. Daniel is a sort of at-last person, isn't he? As a last resort, he turns to the believer. Well, he can't find the answers anywhere else, so he might as well give it a go. Now, it's quite interesting the way that, uh, that Daniel is referred to. First of all, he calls him Belteshazzar, which wasn't the name that his mum gave him. This is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him. It's a name that says, this guy is brilliant because of my God, not your God. Not very helpful. He calls him the chief of the magicians. That's quite fun, isn't it? I mean, imagine, imagine, you know, you know, call your minister the chief of your magicians. That would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> Make his hair fall out. Or maybe you have done. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar actually believes that Daniel is indwelt by all the holy gods. Whoops. 
Now it's quite interesting that this, he's talk, this bit's in Aramaic and that's probably what it means. In the Hebrew, the word for God, Elohim, is actually a plural, plural word in the Hebrew Bible. He's a plural God who does things in the singular. The verbs are always singular for those who like grammar. So he's a plural God who does things in the singular, which we come to understand when we develop the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Jewish people would have read this and said, aha, they know that the spirit of the Holy God is in them. But actually, probably uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, is, is still looking at Daniel through his grid with loads of gods. And he says, you haven't just, you're not just in harmony with one God, you're in harmony with the whole of the spirit of heaven. But actually this is quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, Daniel is, is in a different league from all the others. He really is premier division. He plays the whole game differently. He's got talent that nobody else has got. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this. Now, why is this? Because Daniel had been around long enough to win credibility. Now, can I say this... Uh, there is a fashion these days to do what I call missionary tourism or short-term mission. Now, I'm not against having a go-look-see. It's good to have a go-look-see because you can get hooked that way, like these two. Uh, you can get hooked. That's good. But go-look-see is not enough normally to develop street cred with the locals. Develop street cred with the locals, you can discover what Daniel does. He studies at their universities till he's fluent with their language and he even knows what all their magic and occultism works like and how it makes them tick. Now that's dangerous for a believer, but he hadn't actually got any choice because he was a prisoner. But he's put through that so he understands what makes these people tick. He understands what they turn to under crisis and he speaks their language. Now it's very interesting, isn't it? He's been there long enough that people have watched him and they know that this boy gives answers that work. Right? They see the difference. He doesn't compromise. He and his mates are prepared to risk the fire rather than dishonour their God. That's quite amazing, isn't it? And I find that very humbling. He asked a believer to help him. Now that seems to me to be a very important lesson for all of us to learn. Not that any of us are going to be 100% perfect Christians. We're not. But actually, if we want to pe win people, we've got to be close enough to them to really develop street cred with them. And I find that immensely challenging. I was preaching at a church in one of the other British cities not very long ago, and somebody said to me, we have discovered that there are, I think they said, several thousand Kurds in our city. So we have started learning Kurdish and we are about to move in two weeks' time into that area and find a job there. That's an interesting concept within a British city, isn't it? But we want to develop street cred with that lot. Now this is a sort of Daniel mindset. We need to think seriously about that and that sort of belonging and understanding. 
I want you to notice fourthly that the believer actually tells him some fairly uncomfortable truths. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and people often have dreams, but people, interestingly enough, are not normally converted by dreams. They're psyched up to be in the right place, but they need a believer, like the two women who went up the mountain to the folk that had already been psyched up to know which ones they were to listen to and which ones they were to send home. And here we find, look at verses 24 and following, you get the interpretation that Daniel did. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And so it goes on. The first thing that Daniel says to the king is, you are not right with God. That's that's scary, isn't it? But at some point it needs to be... Sometimes people say it to you. A guy in Zhengzhou in central China said to me, I've made a mess of my life. I need to get back in harmony with the one who made me. And it really, you sort of go, boom, boom, boom. Wow, he's got it. But more often than not, people have got to be told, you're not right with God. In fact, he goes further than that, and in verse 25, he says, you need to give God his rightful place in your life. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of people and gives them to every, anyone he wishes. God is God, lad. Now, this is very interesting. He's not saying to Nebuchadnezzar, deep down in your heart you have a special need and I want to speak to you about it. He's talking to a self-made chauvinistic male. So he's not doing this soft stuff that is part of the gospel. He's doing this pow on the nose stuff which is also part of the gospel. Which we need to do more of in China where the church, despite what God has done, is 80% female which raises huge problems for female believers. The same is true in Japan and in Mongolia and to a slightly lesser extent in Korea. A serious problem of not confronting self-made chauvinistic males. But Daniel does. It's God who is God, not you. Sort it out, lad. And he doesn't just bash him. He says, and if you do, there is hope. Verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. When you give God his place. And then he says to him, Lad, sir, king, you've got to change your mind in a big way. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed it may be that your prosperity will continue sort it out that now I want you to understand there are certain types of believers that just love to tell everybody that they're going straight to hell Daniel was not such a person Daniel was someone who found this very traumatic and very uncomfortable to have to speak about God's rights and God's judgments to a man like Nebuchadnezzar. 
You see in verse 19, when Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. And the king said to him, Shazzar, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. But it did alarm him. What was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar traumatised Daniel. This is very interesting, you see. This is the guy who also has something of the compassion of Christ, isn't it? That he is afraid and he is sympathetic and humble. Verse 19, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. I want to say to you in this respect, thank you for those kind comments about God, that's not fair that somebody made to me earlier. But the pain and necessity of facing up to the reality of sin and judgment in the world is something that we have got to face up to. Many people say, I don't want to believe it, it is too painful. It is too frightening to have to tell people about these things. Daniel says, I must, and it does hurt, and it is uncomfortable. And so he tells him that, and bless his heart, Nebuchadnezzar does sweet nothing about it. A year later, God zaps him, but it's a year later. You see that in verse 29 and 30, 28 and 29. One year and nothing done. That's right, isn't it? Even when you have a great talk with somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get saved. It's very, very, very frustrating. But then God moved in, didn't he? And verses 30 to 33 tell us that Nebuchadnezzar was broken, shattered by God. And he concludes in the last verse of the chapter that human arrogance can't last before God. Those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. It is amazing. When you look at verse 30, Isn't this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You twit! Daniel's already told you not to talk like that. And you can't help yourself. And so we find God brings in this rough, just discipline. Seven months of terrifying insanity. The Lord Jesus put it in an interesting way in Luke chapter 20 and verse 18. He said, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And here we find extraordinarily, sorry I don't even remember to turn mine off in the first hymn, <laughs> he discovered extraordinarily that the Lord was breaking him in order to remake him. And there here we see this extraordinary breakthrough of conviction of sin and the extraordinary breakthrough as this man is, in some way anyway, converted. 
And there are a number of things I find fascinating here. One is that you can see that God can actually get through to somebody who is mentally deranged. That's very encouraging actually, isn't it? God can get through to those that you couldn't get through to in a million years. Nothing is too hard for him. And yet actually it's a picture of the way that God works in every conversion, isn't it? Because nobody can actually hear and get the message and have it sinking in unless God does and God gets through. But isn't this an extraordinary testimony from what outwardly was a very successful man? He was made a new person. Verse 34, it says that he was restored. His sanity was restored. It tells us that his power and his splendour were restored and his work was given back to him, verse 36. But this is more than a restoration, isn't it? For this guy now has a new value system. He has a new love and passion for God which he wants to share. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the God, the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Isn't that an extraordinary statement after God's clobbered him like that? He's done what is right. He's the one in charge. And once again we see this extraordinary conviction that he wants all people to know about it. He wants all people to find the shalom of God. He wants all people to hear his testimony. And yet he's not just talking about his testimony, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, isn't he? In verse 3 he did it. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And it's again in verse 34. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Isn't this amazing? What is he saying? He's saying, Listen, nations. This God is mighty. He does things. He's alive. He does what he wants. He's in a different league from everything else. You can't play games with God. This is his message to the nations. Secondly, his message to the nations is he is reliable. Everything he does is right. All his ways are just. Therefore, you can trust this God. He's not a mucky God like the imaginations of the nations. And thirdly, he is eternally reigning. Verse 3 says that. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 34 says that. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. What do we have to say from generation to generation for? Because it never wears out. 
because what's true for those of us who are grandparents here is true for the wee kids here. And we pass it on and we pass it round because wherever you go, the Lord reigns and however old people are, the Lord is the answer. Well, that was Nebuchadnezzar's missionary vision and he didn't know anything very much about Jesus. But we do, don't we? And that makes it all so much clearer. Don't you reckon?